might not have known that, but we're doing a new series this week, uh, and it's called Unleashed. And um, it is a word that Beck and I have had on our heart for probably about four months now. We've been thinking about it. We've been thinking about what is it that God wants to do this year in our church. And the word unleashed came to mind. Before we start talking about that, just so you know, this morning we've got something really special. We've got some Pietro gelato um, that is coming. There's a couple of different flavors. There is a, I forgot, I've forgotten. There's a ricotta chocolate one. And then there's... A peach and passion fruit one. Peach and passion fruit is gluten-free. And we just asked for a gold coin donation that will go into some community engagement project that we've got coming through this year. So just help yourself in the foyer. Uh, the HOSPO team will be helping us with that. So stick around. Don't run away. I know it's been a bit of a warm time, and that's where uh, we wanted to have a bit of ice cream to celebrate as well. Ice cream, gelato. Who knows the difference between ice cream and gelato? Eggs. I heard eggs. There you go, learn something new. All right, let's pray and let's close. And then no, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, but this morning we are talking about Unleashed. And as, as, as I was thinking about this Sunday and getting the message ready, I remember it probably about seven years ago, Beck and I, we were trying to sell our house uh, to move into this area. We really wanted to be a part of this community. And um, at that point, Beck had actually just bought uh, a cat for me for Christmas. His name is Mowgli, and so we had to have all these home opens, and if you have a home open, you probably don't want to leave your cat just lying around, right? And so we're like, oh no, we, and Mowgli is an indoor cat, and so we, we knew that we needed to take this cat out into the wild, and so uh, we bought him a leash. Now, this is not a picture of Mowgli, but this is a picture of a cat with a similar leash, although Mowgli kind of looks like that. He doesn't look quite as derpy as that, though. That cat's got something wrong with his eyes. But this was the funniest thing. We didn't get one of those leashes that was literally on a collar because we felt like it was a bit inhumane every time. We didn't want him going somewhere. We were literally choking him. And so we got one of those that would be pulling on his back. And um, the funniest thing happened. We put this harness on him, and it was like the weight of the world fell on this little cat. It was like, he was on all fours, and, and you put it on, and, and it's like he slowly went down. It was like, it, it's like I wasn't even holding him, and this thing was just a string on his back, but it felt like, or, or not string, but the material on his back, but it felt like something was pushing him down. And, and he started, I don't know if you know much about cats, but when cats uh, are a little bit suspicious about stuff, they do what we call the low crawl. So it's like, it's kind of like walking around, and it was, like, it was like trying to get away from this weight on his shoulders, and then it'll take a few steps, and it literally just froze, and then he just fell on the side, like one of those like cartoons from, from, I don't know, have you seen those cartoons? Like, I don't know, cows, they just freak out and then they just drop on its side. It literally happened, and then it was like, uh, the first time it happened, Beck and I just looked at it, and we were like, we broke our cat. We literally broke our cat. He, he was, he was he was not liking it. And this happened, like, he, he would get used to it. We would bring him to the park because we needed to just get him out of the house for about 40 minutes for the home open. And um, this happened week after week. We actually took about, uh, our house was on the market for something like nine months. We couldn't sell it. And so every week we had a home open. We were doing this with Mowgli. We were putting the harness on. It would feel like the weight of the world fell on his shoulders. He would topple over and we would like pray for his resurrection and then we would take him out of the house. Isn't that what a leash can sometimes feel like? 
And I know it feels like, even though it's like, it, it feels restrictive, it feels like there's something on us that stops us from being able to live life normally, right? And so in some way, uh, this, this, this year, we feel like God wants to remove the leash off people's lives because leashes can hold us back. Leashes can stop us from living the life that God has uh, de- declared over us. And that's why we, we have in our church a, a mission that we want to inspire people to live, but not just any life, but the life that Jesus Christ has promised to us, a life that is overflowing, a life that is real, a life that is everlasting. But there's something else, and the next few weeks we'll talk more about the things that God wants us to unleash into. But I was thinking about my cat. And as much as it was partly hilarious, partly tragic that he would experience this every week, he was not quite wired for it, but he didn't understand that there was a greater purpose behind this leash. You see, this leash wasn't necessarily to destroy his life, but rather to keep his life. If we brought him out into a park without a leash, he would probably dash under some uh, a bush and we would probably never see him again. We, even with the leash, that's what he was trying to do. But at least with a leash, he could be pulled back to where he's meant to be. And so as I'm thinking about unleashed, I, I started to realize that there are things that we're meant to be unleashed from, but then that we also need to realize that there are things that we need to be leashed to. I think that our culture tells us that freedom means to to have unlimited choice, that we are able to do whatever we want with whatever freedom that we choose to have. If I have all of these options in front of me, I will be able to live my best life. But I've started to realize, especially the work that we do, that unlimited choices often result in dysfunctional people, dysfunctional human beings. We choose things that sometimes aren't right for us, for Mowgli, Who's going to bring in the food? We are. Who's going to keep him safe? Who's going to watch over him? We've taken on that responsibility. The leash is a necessary thing that sometimes doesn't feel good, but it's to hold him close so that we can bring him to a place where he can once again be let while in our house in a space that is safe for us. The Bible tells us often that God has set up for us wide open spaces But those wide open spaces require us to have a certain amount of leashing. And so that's what I want to explore this morning with you. And um, we're going to be looking at a bit of a a character study, and I'm going to call this a tale of two Sams. And we'll look at that in a moment. And that's not just because my son's name is Sam, uh, but because there are two Sams in the Bible that have a really interesting life, and we're going to go on to that. Um, But before we do so, I need to set the tone. And um, there is a concept, there is a, um, there's something in the Bible that not many of us probably really have heard of or known about, and that is something called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow is found, I think, in Numbers chapter 6, and is described as a, uh, a vow that a person takes in order to, for a season, be completely devoted to God. All right, so there's a Nazarite vow. Um, and a, and a person who is taking this vow uh, says to God, uh, uh, promises and vows to God that I'm not going to touch any fermented drink or any alcohol, and I'm not going to cut my hair. That's the outside symbols of the Nazarite vow. And so as I was looking in this, it's kind of interesting. The Nazarite's um, uh, uh, vow is, is, is not very well um, pulled apart in the Bible. 
We don't know a lot about the Nazarite vow except for the fact that these dudes would walk around and not have any alcohol and would have long hair. Um, and, and to some extent, I kind of think that a lot of dudes in that time probably had longish hair anyway. So, so why is the Nazarite vow so important? And so basically this person has to do these symbols in order to say, I'm devoted to God. And if you are like me, you would probably think that that is something that I'm doing as a service to God already, right? I'm devoting myself to God. I'm going to abstain from certain things in order to look like I am devoted to God. That is my service to God. In some way, I think about it as a gift to God. I remember when I finished high school, I went to Bible college for uh, a year, and, and I remember saying to God that this year, God, I am dedicating to you. I'm going to live for you. And as an 18-year-old, I made a vow that I would not get into a, a romantic relationship because that was the greatest thing I could give to God. I saw it as this gift, as though me having a girlfriend uh, was going to somehow... I don't know, not be devoted to God or something like that. But in my mind, I was doing a sacrifice that was already something that was so special to God. At least that's what I thought. But when I read recently this year and I was looking at the Nazarite vow, and it's not explained, like I said, a lot. You can look at it in number six. But this is what it says in verse 13 to 15. This is what happens when the Nazarite's vow finishes, okay? And it says, And this is the law for the Nazarite, that when the time of his separation has been completed, separation from people being devoted to God, he's, he's the, that's, that's the devotion, that's the language, he's separated from people, from normal life in order to be devoted to God. He shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord. One male lamb, a year old, without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offerings, and their drink offerings." This person has just spent a period of time being totally devoted to God, in my mind, as a gift to God. And when this person's time as a Nazarite is done, he has to buy three sheep, bake a whole bunch of bread, and associated with that is some wine and flour that he gives to God. And if you notice what kind of offerings there are, is a burnt offering, is a sin offering, is a peace offering. I'm like, isn't the whole time of devotion already one of consecrating and putting yourself aside? But God still demands a gift be given, an expensive gift. I was looking at this in the commentaries, and they were saying that some people who took on the Nazarite vow actually needed to beg and borrow from their neighbors in order to complete their vows. And I looked at that, and I went, if that's the kind of devotion God demands from me, it's a hefty price. And I wonder whether some of us look at Christianity and we go, that's restrictive. That's a leash that I don't know if I want. We behave like cats with harnesses on our backs. And we think that this thing is unnatural. This thing shouldn't be the case. I mean, when we think about Christianity, right up, we just talked about giving, and the Bible tells us about putting aside 10% of our income to God. Restrictive. We think about having to attend some kind of church service, or as we call it here, a gathering every Sunday. Restrictive. 
We think about uh, all the different things. Uh, Sandy says, now we have to give another weeknight a week to be around other Christians. Restrictive. We have to love one another. Restrictive. I have to hold back my anger. Restrictive. I'm not allowed to get drunk. Restrictive. I'm not allowed to sleep around. Restrictive. Sometimes we think that Christianity is restrictive because we look at the leash rather than who's holding the leash. See, the thing about the Nazarites is that they came to God. They were the ones that chose to make a vow to God because they knew that without God's favor, without God's grace, they would not be able to carry out the things that were on their heart. Quite often, the Nazarites were people that were about to go fight a battle for God. And they would look at the opposition. They would look at who's on the other side. And they would go, I'm not going to be able to carry this out. See, the truth is, sometimes we need to consider whether our devotion to God is bringing us into the favor of God. We need to think about whether our level of devotion is bringing us access into the grace that God has made available for us, not because of what I want to do, but because of what God wants to accomplish. I started to look at the Nazarites in the Bible, and we're going to be looking at two of them particularly soon, but there's only four people that possibly are Nazarites uh, as described in the Bible. Only four. The first is Samson, and there's one of the Sams, just a little tip. And the next one was Samuel, and that's the real Sam, and, uh, and we'll talk about him in a moment. And then there was John the Baptist, and then there was Paul the Apostle. Think about these four dudes. Samson, even if you're not really been at church for long, you would know the story of Samson. This guy who had this long hair, who could kill lions with his bare hands. He, he would tie foxes together. Like, why? And, and he would, like, have super strength. He was the superman of the Bible. I remember growing up reading about Samson and going like, man, that's cool. I want to have that grace. Which dude didn't grow up in, high, in, in, in Sunday school thinking Samson's a cool dude? What else, Samson? Samuel was the one who turned a whole nation around. Being a Nazarite was something that gave him access into God's heart and turned a whole nation that was sliding towards idolatry and destruction, and he turns them around. John the Baptist comes when there has been a time of silence from God. There hasn't been a word of God that has come through, and suddenly John the Baptist comes out, and he begins to say that the Messiah is coming. He prepares the way for Jesus. And then we have Paul the Apostle, who as a Nazarite, brought the gospel into places that never heard the gospel before. He, without Paul, we will not have the modern-day church. We will not have uh, Christianity spread beyond Jerusalem because uh, Paul took a vow and said, I'm devoted to you, and I'm going to go where you call me to. Church, if nothing else, I hope to stir up in us that a devotion to God is not supposed to be restrictive. It's supposed to be expansive. That when I'm totally devoted to God, it gives me the grace to be able to do the things that He's put on my heart that should be beyond me. When I look at this church and what this church can accomplish, you know what I see? It's not enough, God. I'm excited about what God wants to do, but I'm also caught up in a moment where I'm going like, how are we meant to do that? And that should be the way that our vision works with God. If our lives get so controllable and so small that every time we think about God, say, oh yeah, I've got that under control, we're probably not looking through the eyes of faith. We're probably looking at ourselves and just going, what do I want to do? 
But when we have an encounter with God, I believe that it's supposed to stir something up in us. And that's why over the next few weeks, we put things in place so that at the start of the year, we can have this devotion to God and allow Him to speak into our lives. On the 4th of February, we're going to have an upper room worship night. We're going to have our normal Sunday morning gathering. And then in the evening at 4.30, we're going to come back and we're going to send time worshiping together and praying for each other for a word from God. See, Beck and I, as pastors, we get to get around awesome networks of other pastors. And every year, one particular network, our Harvest Net pastors, we get together, we go down to Mandra, and we pray for each other. We pray for a word from God to encourage, uh, to prophesy into one another. We do that. And literally every year, we come back from that full of vision and full of hope. In fact, most of the time, we come back and we go, God, this is big. And I love that. That's the way it's supposed to be. And I hope the upper room is going to be that moment for you. It's like, God, what you want to do in me and through me is bigger than I could ever hope for. And then after that, 10 days later, on Valentine's Day, we are going to start Lent together. Now, some of you have heard of Lent before. And, and as a church, we, we practice Lent, which is 40 days of fasting because we want to remember what Christ has done. We want to repent. We want to come back to Him. We've got a whole bunch of resources, but let me tell you, fasting is something that is essential for a life devoted to God. And we're going to put our resources out there. You can talk to, go talk to your lift groups as well. How are you going to fast together? Let's get ready, because devotion unlocks grace. Devotion to God unlocks grace. A devotion to God unlocks grace. But here's where we're going to shift gears and we're going to look at the tale of two Sams. See, there was Samson and there was Samuel. And there was something about their lives that stood out to me as I was reading about it this year. See, Samson, as many of us know, uh, is this superhero type story. But as I've been studying the Bible, I started to realize that Samson is a bit of a doofus. <laughs> Samson's like the biggest idiot. And if you ever read the Bible and then you remember, like, I remember it, like when I was in Sunday school that Samson was awesome. It's like, yeah, because in primary school, they cherry-picked the stories to tell you the awesome things that Samson did. But overall, his life was a life of a loser. But this guy and Samuel actually had a very similar setup to their lives. See, both of these dudes had their parents set them up as Nazarites for the rest of their lives. They didn't actually choose the Nazarite life. The Nazarite life was chosen for them. And you can read about this. We don't have time to look through the whole story, but there's Judges 13. Um, uh, has, has Samson's story over a couple of chapters. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 1 onwards, in fact, there are two whole books about Samuel's life. Pretty awesome. But when I look at Samson's life, it, it, it's a little bit strange to me because um, I thought this guy should have been better. And we're allowed to think that sometimes. When we look at the Bible, not every character is meant to be perfect. Sometimes they show us things that we can learn from their lives. Samson's one of those that we learn what not to do. But when I look at Samson's life and I look at how it started, what amazes me is that this guy was supposed to be set up for something so much bigger than he actually accomplished. 
You see, Samson's mom was barren. She couldn't have kids. And one day, an angel of the Lord comes and visits her and begins to speak to her and says that you need to, you're going to have a child, and this child needs to be a Nazarite. He's not allowed to drink wine, and he, needs, uh, he cannot have uh, a razor touch his hair. He needs to be consecrated as a Nazarite, set apart for God, in order that God can do these amazing things. All right, so that's what, they, uh, uh, what she was told, and, and she was like, whoa, this is crazy. And so she goes to her husband, Manoah, and, he, and, and, and she says to Manoah, hey, a, a guy came up to me and said all of these things. And this is what her husband uh, does in Judges 13 verse 8. He says, then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, let the man of God whom you send come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child um, who will be born. And I read that, and as a parent, I go, I wish that all of us would have that sense. That when we have a child, we immediately go, teach me how I'm to raise this child. Because children, I realize that children have the potential to be anything. They, they, they are almost like these blank canvases that we get to paint with and show them how colorful and beautiful and wonderful their life gets to be. And Manoah and his wife, they immediately go, God, we need to know. You're telling us that our child's life is going to be amazing. Tell us what to do. And the Bible tells us uh, a few verses later that God honors the prayer and this angel comes back. And in Judges 13, verses 12 to 14, this is what it says. Uh, to, the, uh, to the angel, Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let, any, uh, let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. And I looked at that, and I, at first I was like, Oh, wow, look at these parents. They really wanted to know. And then I looked at this angel's response, and I was like, He didn't say anything. Yeah. I mean, most of us... Most of us pregnant women, you know, if you're pregnant, you kind of know that there's a restriction to your diet anyway. You're not supposed to be like drinking alcohol uh, out of a bottle or anything like that. You know that, that that's necessary. This angel didn't really say much. And I was thinking about this and I was like, why didn't, why didn't God tell Manoah and his wife, hey, your son's going to be dedicated to God. He needs to be, uh, you know, learning about the, 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 the scripture. He needs to learn about the covenant. He needs to learn all of these things. He needs to get ready. You need to train him up in all of these ways. No, he said, he said to the mom, I've already told you what you need to do. Don't eat dumb things. Don't drink wine and don't let his hair get cut. And I was like, what is going on? And I started to realize that's because these guys are Jewish. They're not Australians living in Belmont. They were Jewish people who only a few decades ago, maybe, had come out of Egypt. They had left a land of slavery. They had seen God's amazing hand. They had heard about the commandments while in the wilderness, and they were read those commandments when they entered the promised land. They knew what God said, and when they heard about the Nazarite vow, they said, God, Nazarite vow, my son is fully dedicated to God. I need to prepare for him to live as a one fully dedicated to God. You see, I think Manoah and his wife took the easy route. He said, all right. No alcohol and no haircuts. Let's save it the money. Let's just go on with our normal life. Because when I look at Samson's life from there, I started to see that his parents never restricted him 
from the things that he was meant to be separated from. He was not meant to be around dead bodies. He hung around dead bodies. He was meant to be saving the people of Israel from the Philistines. He hung out with the Philistines. He was meant to uh, be pure. He found prostitutes and slept with them. And all the more, uh, these, these things were happening while his parents were still there. They were there. You can read the story. Samson does this and his parents are like, oh, you really shouldn't. It kind of tells me that in this current climate and this world, we have this similar sense of permissive parenting. Oh, my child should know better because he's dedicated to God. Oh, we need to be as parents. Side note to parents, you're responsible. You're responsible. When your child is doing something that is going to cut across their devotion to God, say something. Stop them, especially while they're young. Once they hit teenagehood, it's going to be hell if you try to stop them from doing stuff. But what I've realized and what I've seen is that while they are young kids and they still listen and you tell them when they hit teenagehood, it doesn't tend to be as hard. The parenting books say this, and so yes, when they are three nages and they are showing that they are rebellious, when they don't want to eat their flipping breakfast, you show them the way of the law. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know where that came from. Well, we have to bring parameters. We need to put a leash. Not because we are trying to restrict them, but because we're trying to hold them close to what they're meant to be held close to. See, as we flip to Samuel's story, now Samson's story is sad. If you, if you understand the book of Judges, the arc of the book of Judges, the storyline is that Israel's in decline. The first few Judges, they do a good job. But at, towards the end, the Judges are as corrupt as the people that they are meant to be serving. Samson is one of the last Judges. He's so corrupt that all that we are told is that he kills a bunch of Philistines. That's all he does. And it even tells us that he kills more people at his death than his whole life. He achieved more by dying than by living. It's really sad. And, and so after Samson, there's like, I think, one or two more judges, and then it tells us that Israel is it's in a bad place. And then suddenly we flip over to a couple of books later, we come to 1 Samuel. We see that the people of Israel don't follow God anymore. There is nothing really going on. And then we come to this family, and this lady, and her name is Hannah. Hannah, again, like Samson's parents, are barren, doesn't have a kid. And Hannah, this time around, is the one that goes to God's house. She's the one who has always followed and always went to God's house. She goes to God's house, she prays. And she says to God, God, if I have a child, I will dedicate this child to you. No razor is going to touch his head. She makes the Nazarite vow. She knows what the Nazarite vow is about. Well, God opens her womb, and she has this child. And the Bible tells us that in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 24 to 28, let's just read it. It says, and when she had weaned him, so that was maybe around the ages of two to four, she weaned um, Samuel, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Again, catch this people, she dedicated her child, her first child, a miracle child to God, and yet she still brought an offering to God. Sometimes I think that we have a really low standard of what sacrifices to God. 
I rocked up on Sunday, right? Yeah, without an offering of praise. It's just something that is stirring in me, that maybe something that needs to be unleashed in us is this sense of of, of, of material control and, and amassing things that, 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 that feel nice. The Bible tells us that the accumulation of stuff is not where life is. And Hannah, he, she's generous. She, she brings her son to the house of God knowing that she's going to leave him in the service of God, but yet she still brings an offering of praise. Why? Because she just knows. She just knows that God's hand of blessing is going to be on her son. She just knows that she knows that she's leaving a blessed woman. She knows that God is good and looking after her. The gift that she brings to God isn't that much of a sacrifice because she understands what God is able to pour into her life. If we would live in that kind of a way where we are not stingy with God, I wonder what kind of blessing we would see. The more I read through the Bible, the more I realize, I recognize that, that there is blessing attached with righteousness. There is blessing attached with living for God. The whole Old Testament is filled with it and it's carried on in the New Testament. We need to stop just talking about God's grace as though whatever we do, God's grace covers. We do not have a whole pass from God, church. That's a bit American. We do not have a permission slip to do whatever we want from God. We do not have a get-out-of-jail-free card from God. We have a relationship with the Most High who is doing things both that feel good and don't feel so good in order that we can understand the fullness of His riches and glory. That wasn't something I intended to say. But they slaughtered the bull, verse 25, and they brought the child Eli. Eli was the priest. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. See, Samson's parents understood that he was devoted to God, yet there's not a single time in his life that he was at the house of God. He was devoted to God, and he was never in God's presence. He was devoted to God, yet there's no record of God really speaking to him or directing his steps. He was devoted to God. He was graced by God. He had superhuman strength. He had the gifts of God, but he didn't have the relationship with God. What did he accomplish? He killed a bunch of guys, and led the nation astray. Samuel, on the other hand, there's no record of him being very special at all. He had no superhuman strength. He couldn't fly. He couldn't walk through walls. He couldn't do any of those things. It doesn't even really say that he was that prophetic and able to see into the future. But what Samuel had that Samson didn't was a relationship with God. He was left in the house of God to grow up. He grew up in God's house. And I love that line. It says, and he worshipped the Lord there. His mom ensured that, she, that he knew how to worship God. His mom ensured that he was devoted to God and every single day of his life he would worship God. He would know his presence. A couple of chapters later, God speaks directly to Samuel and it was the first time God spoke to the nation of Israel. Why did he speak to Samuel? It's because he was devoted to him. Samson was devoted but only externally. No wine, long hair. Samuel was devoted 
No wine, long hair in the house of God. There is a difference. I know there are many parents and you're looking at the world and you're going, and what do I do about my kids? Yes, devote them to God. Get them baptized. That's an amazing thing. Do all those things. Get them into church, but ensure that they're not just doing it externally, but something is going on in their hearts that they understand how to worship, how to meet with God. Yesterday or the day before as I was winding Sam down, he said, how do I hear Jesus' voice? How do I hear Jesus' voice? That should be the desire of our hearts that the next generation actually know God's voice. Come on, parents. Your kid is going to have so many opportunities to explore a wonderful world. But he needs and she needs to have encounters with God. A life dedicated to God is not something external. It's something that goes on in the heart. But for us as just general people, how's your devotion to God? What consumes your mind every single day? Are you consumed with worldly things or is there something in you that comes back to God? How, how, how are you going to the Word of God? The book that He wrote for you so that you get to know Him. Don't tell me that you're devoted to God if you don't read your Word. Don't tell me you're devoted to God if you don't know what he's saying. And yes, devotion actually takes time to develop. See, devotion isn't unlike another word that we don't like. It's a word called discipline. I'm devoted to my wife, Beck, and it means that I'm disciplined in my relationship with her. I'm devoted to Beck because I make sure that there is time every single week for us to spend together. I'm devoted to Beck, and so I'm disciplined in my eyes. I'm not looking around for another partner. I'm disciplined to Beck. I'm supposed to be still working on that. Discipline in my lips and how I talk to her. There's a discipline that comes with devotion, and there's a leash that sometimes makes us feel like the weight of the world is on us and causing us to fall over. But maybe we learn that this is not a leash that's meant to be restrictive, but it's a leash that's meant to be life-giving. See, the truth is all of us, we can't live completely untested in the world. We always find something that we are gravitated towards that we give our devotion and our life to. Sometimes it's also called worship. What are you worshiping? The latest car on the road? The nicer house down the road? What are you comparing? What are you seeing? See, I want to see what is of value to God. I want to see with eyes that see what the kingdom is about and what God is wanting to do. I've started to realize that there are things that even in the church world, let me tell you that sometimes us pastors get it wrong. We play who's got the biggest church as though that talks about how anointed you are. Samson was super strong and super deluded. There are some people and some pastors, myself included, there was a stage where I thought that the bigger the church is, the more anointed I am. I started to realize that the more obedient I am to God, the more anointed I am. So church, unleashed. Yes, let's get rid of all the things that are holding us back, but let's hold on to the one that brings life and truth to our souls. Yes, let's be free from the things that hold us back. 
but let us hold on to what is truth and what is good. Don't free yourself from truth. Don't be unleashed from the anchor for your soul. Don't be unleashed into all your pursuits that have nothing to do with God's kingdom because that is only temporary, whereas what God has is everlasting. So the first message of unleashed, I know it's kind of the other way around, but there's something in me that is, God's drawing this in me. Every year, for the last three years, I do something called the Bible Shred, which is reading through the whole Bible in a year, in a year, in a month. I started three days uh, earlier, and so I'm, I'm very close to the finish line. I'm very proud about it, because this is discipline. But this year, as I look into this book, what keeps pinging to me is that God keeps talking about the reward for righteousness. The reward for righteousness the reward for being upright. It's something that I think we need to rediscover as a church. Am I righteous before God? And I understand of like completely pure, but am I completely pursuing the things that matter to God? Am I completely taken? Church, it would be better for you to either go the whole distance and do a Samuel rather than to do a half measure and go to a Samson. Samson accomplished more by dying than by living. Samuel accomplished so much in his life. He turned a whole nation around. I really do believe that there are people in this room that are called to change this nation. I really believe that there are people in this room that are called to make massive change and difference in bringing God's kingdom onto earth. But it's not going to happen if we only have Samson's devotion. But it will happen if we have Samuel's devotion. So it's a tale of two Sams. Are you going to choose Samson? Are you going to choose Samuel? If we can get the band up this morning. I just thought that we need to just spend a moment of time. We just need to consider. We just need to reflect. Here's some questions for you to just consider. How is my love for God? Are the things that I'm doing because God has put them on my heart or is it because I wanted them? How are my disciplines? Have I set myself to follow God with everything? Now, like I said, this is not about judgment. This is not about me saying, come on, you guys, you're so lousy. This, this is what God's putting on my heart for me. I'm asking myself these questions and I'm going like, I don't, I don't think I'm there yet. That's why I want to do Upper Room on the 4th of Feb. Because I want more time set apart to worship God and to hear His voice. That's why I want to do Lent. Because I want to be putting time aside to seek after God and what He wants to do. So can we just stand, church? Can we just take a moment, just a couple of minutes, just to sing this song together and allow God to speak into your hearts. And you know what? I'm going to ask some of you to be brave. Different people on different parts of the journey. This is not about who's better than who. Don't even compare.
But if God is speaking to you and He's saying to you, there's a stirring in your heart and He's saying to you, there's a new level of devotion that I'm bringing you into. Can you come up to the front? Let's say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live separated. See, the Nazarite vow was as much for those outside, those other people who would see this person and go, well, that person's devoted to God because they were the hallmarks of a person who was devoted to God. So sometimes we need to be courageous in our stand, courageous in what we do to set ourselves apart in order that we can live a life that is fully devoted to God. So as we sing this song, if that is you, if God is saying to you, I want to bring you into a deeper level of devotion. Can you be courageous? Can you stand? Can you come forward? I believe that God rewards those that are obeying Him and listening to Him. This is not something we do all the time. This is not something that we do for hype. But this is truly, I really believe as I was preparing this message, that there are those that are going to draw a line in the sand. And this is you saying to God, God, I want to be devoted. I don't want to just give you half of my heart. I don't want to give you even three quarters of my heart. I need to give you all. Every moment, every breath, every heartbeat, I want to live devoted to you with all of my heart, all of my soul, and all of my strength. I'm believing for a fresh grace to come upon you as you dedicate yourself to God. I believe that there's going to be an ease in your walk as you say to God, God, my life is yours. And so I'm going to hand over to the band leaders in this song. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.